Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. My original background was in 3D graphics and programming, and I had a decision point where I had to decide, you know, do I go work for Pixar, Disney, or continue into medicine? And I decided to go into medicine. So while my friends are working on Transformers and uh, you know, all these movies, <clears throat> I'm putting genomic data into the EHR, which is way cooler. <laughs> so, and for all of you who are doing statistical genetics, um, I did do two years of genetic epidemiology, um, you know, learning a lot of complex math and complex statistical analysis, but really you guys are just wasting your time until now. So now we can actually put some of this information into clinical care and actually change patient outcomes. So I just wanted to give you an introduction real quickly into some of the things we're doing at Geisinger. So we have this MyCode Return of Results program. So this is where um, any of our patients, can, they can come in and we can consent them to this study that's a collaboration with Regeneron and we sequence their DNA and we can use that to return uh, genetic results to them that <clears throat> are important for their clinical care. So we only return results where we can do something to make an impact or difference in their outcomes. So for example, with a BRCA1, BRCA2 variants in breast cancer, um, there are, you can do um, get mastectomies, oophorectomies, you can just do more aggressive surveillance, but um, you can prevent or catch breast cancer early. We have um, a number of other conditions, the ACMG um, 76, these are a, a number of clinically actionable conditions that we can um, change patient outcomes by looking at them. So, so far, we have over 200,000 people consented into this. Um, it says 93,000 sequenced. We're now up to, I believe, 157,000. I just looked at the report today. Um, we had that part. The, the, we sequenced them in huge batches, and I, I guess that's officially done now. Um, and then we have, I believe it's about 1,100 results that we've actually returned to patients. And this is out of only the 90,000. <clears> and so these are results that we've returned to patients where we can make an intervention and we have been able to impact patient care significantly. So this is a really important undertaking. Based on the, res the results of the MyCode program, we started another initiative, um, which is our Precision Health Pilot. So Geisinger is a unique system in that the healthcare um, provider and the insurer are part of the same organization. And so we can make what I call <laughs> intelligent decisions about people's care um, because they're, they're all part of the same team. So they've looked at this MyCode and saw the impact that we're able to have and said, this actually makes sense, um, not just for the patient, but also financially. So based on this, they've actually funded this pilot where we're going to sequence up to 1,000 patients. They just go into their primary care provider and say, I want sequencing done as a standard part of my care, and they get that sequencing done. So we just started that in July. And again, we're returning the results on the reportable conditions. So those are a couple of the initiatives we have. And now these initiatives generate a lot of data and how we use that and how we incorporate that into the clinical workflow is important and one of the things that I'm going to be focusing on. 
So I first want to give an introduction to genetics, especially for people who might not have a background. So essentially, each of us have 46 chromosomes. We have between 20 and 23,000 genes, depending on who you ask. Um, there's about 3 billion base pairs in the human genome. For an ex as an example, BRCA2 has 83,736 base pairs. So, you know, there's 80,000 ways you can screw up that gene. And every time you have a child, they will incur 100 to 200 new mutations. That'll scare you. You know, that's as effective as birth control. Um, and the mutation rate increases with the age of the father. So, I guess breed young. Um, one common misconception I need to clear up is that genetic mutations do not usually give you superpowers. I have yet to been call be called to the NICU and have someone, you know, complaining because a nurse got hit by some laser beam out of a child's eyes and died. Um, so I had to clear that up. But they can do a lot of important things. So what can genes tell physicians? They can tell them the diseases that you're likely to develop, how you're going to react to medications, how you're going to respond to infectious diseases, how you will behave, how you will sleep, and what you eat. All of these things have a genetic component, and so they're really important for your care. And so as we think about how we're going to incorporate this into clinical um, workflow, I want to look back and say, you know, what is medical genetics and genomic medicine? So medical genetics has actually been around for a while, and what we have to do is translate this specialty into the entirety of medicine in all of clinical care because genetics are important for every provider that sees you. So to do this, I want to look at the background and describe what a clinical geneticist does. So medical genetics actually started in the 1940s, didn't require an MD. You could actually have a PhD in practice medicine. This was the only specialty that I know of that this was the case. They tend to be dysmorphologists, so they would identify genetic syndromes based on the characteristics of the patient. And, and this was even before we knew what the genes were that caused them. So they were essentially familial risk identifiers. They identified diseases that ran through families and, and tracked outcomes that way. So we didn't even know how many chromosomes we had until 1956, and the first disease gene map was mapped in 1983. So again, we were practicing genetics before we knew what genes were. So this is a pop quiz. So in which decade was the following statement printed? Of all the applications of medical genetics, the one potentially most valuable is the field of preventative medicine. Who can guess the decade that that was stated? Any guesses? 40s, 50s? 1946. So this is recognized early on. Granted that I think this statement was in a book about eugenics, but still, I, th I think that there were some, th some recognition of some other principles there. <clears throat> so the role of the clinical geneticist is really in diagnosis. So they see a patient and they look at all their features and they diagnose them. So there's a couple of ways we can approach that now. I and mean, we can either diagnose them clinically or we can diagnose them genetically and just make sure that some of the clinical features match. Manage, they manage the conditions based on the genetics. So once we identify a patient as having either a clinical diagnosis or genetic diagnosis, we manage that appropriately by the guidelines and information that we have on other patients. Prevention is a big role that we play. So once we find out what the genetic diagnosis is, 
We look at other patients that have had that diagnosis and we see what kind of things they've developed. What kind of things do we need to look for? Do we need to look for this patient developing heart disease? Do we need to look at this patient developing some type of cancer? Um, one um, story I like to tell that's happened to me is there was a, a young girl who came in and was found to have a particular genetic disorder and we didn't know very much about it. And we typically have those patients follow up because as we learn more, we can guide their care. Well, she didn't follow up for, you know, she didn't follow up at all, but she ended up coming back, I believe it was seven years later, and came back in heart failure. Had she continued to follow up, we had been able to tell that those patients do develop heart failure and we could have prevented that. So really, prevention is a huge part of our role and a huge part of the role that genetics can play. Risk assessment, similarly, and then counseling to tell you, you know, what's the risk to your other family members and to your children, and can we prevent disease in them or manage them more appropriately to have the appropriate outcomes? So this is an extremely challenging field and becoming more challenging every day. We have more than 6,000 known genetic disorders, and I believe it's closer to 10,000 now. We have a nationwide shortage of clinical geneticists, and we're starting to get more referrals from specialists and from direct-to-consumer testing. I've actually had a number of referrals come in that are from direct-to-consumer testing. I'm actually taking those more out of curiosity than, than the actual benefit. And we can talk about a little bit about that too. Some of the direct-to-consumer testing is a, a little bit suspect. Um, there's also a shortage of genetic counselors. If everybody who was in training today was graduated, we still wouldn't feel the need for geneticists and genetic counselors in the U.S., So as I mentioned uh, just earlier, healthy people getting direct-to-consumer tests is another challenge. And there's pharmacogenomics. There's all these weird things about whether you like asparagus. Um, but, but there's all kinds of things in there that people want feedback on, some of them meaningful, some of them not. And, and in the U.S., at least, there has been um, poor reimbursement for testing and services. So for me, as an example, I do an additional two years of schooling in this field to make less money which seems crazy, but I, I really like the field, and I think anybody in it does because there was no other reason they would be there. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty in what we do. There's uncertainty in classification of variants and uncertainty in diagnosis. We have poor access to the data that's crucial in our field, so we don't get back all the information that we could from genetic tests. And the wait times right now that are up to a year to see a clinical geneticist, geneticist at some places. So one of the biggest challenges is physicians outside of clinical genetics aren't really prepared to understand, deliver, or manage genetic testing results. And part of this has to do with training. Part of this is just the information overload. Even for myself anymore, when you see a patient, you really just have to read up on them every time you go to see them, which, you know, if you're a, a care provider or a physician, you can imagine if the a tremendous amount of work every time you see a patient if you have to go read about their disorder. Usually, there's a common set of disorders that you can you know, have a basic knowledge about and you just learn to care for them. The variety in what we see in genetics is so wide that it's, it's impossible to have all that information in your head. So what we need to manage that is we need computer systems that allow physicians to access quick and accurate knowledge about genetic conditions this is really the only way to solve this problem because no one can acquire and maintain the knowledge to manage 10,000 diseases. It's impossible. And so we have to start relying on computers to do this. And my prediction is that 
Genomic medicine will move from a specialty that didn't even require an MD degree to become an integral part of practice required of everyone with an MD degree. And that is the way things are headed. So just um, to illustrate some of the challenges in genetics. So many of you know Angelina Jolly and know about her story with breast cancer. She was found to have a pathogenic variant in BRCA1 and elected to have a bilateral mastectomy. A pretty drastic move, but a, a life-saving move. So just think about that when you look at this graph. So this is discrepancies in variant classification between nine laboratories, and these are good laboratories. These are not, you know, the, any, you know, podunk laboratory without certification. These are really good, you know, genetic laboratories. 22% of the discrepancies in variant classification might affect medical management. That's the kind of uncertainty that we're dealing with in genetics, and it, that's extremely significant when you're making life-changing decisions. Now, here's the concordance of variant classification for the breast cancer genes, BRCA1 and BRCA2, which are arguably the most studied and well-understood genes that we deal with, because these are some of the earliest ones that we had been um, genetically testing for and altering care. And even here you can see there's significant discordance. So you can imagine if you've reported a variant to Angelina Jolie and you've said, this is pathogenic, you need to get a bilateral mastectomy, and then you come back and say, whoops, <laughs> she's going to go all Mr. and Mrs. Smith on you. So BRCA1 and BRCA2 are the most studied genes in the human genome, and we're even screwing those up. And keep in mind that these are, the people classifying these are experts. They're not necessarily general practice physicians who don't have as much of a background in this. And so this is even more difficult when you start introducing this genetic information into the medical record to general practice physicians. This is another story, um, case that hit the news. If, I don't know if you've heard about this one in the past year. But this woman went, underwent a mastectomy and hysterectomy based on the incorrect interpretation of a genetic testing report, and which resulted in a $1.8 million lawsuit. She really didn't have a predisposition. It was a, they had misinterpreted the variant. And frankly, I think that's a low number for a lawsuit. So variant interpretation is difficult, especially when you start testing healthy people. So all of this variant discordance that we just reported, this is based on testing people who have an indication of disease. At Geisinger, where we're sequencing the whole population, we're not necessarily sequencing people that have the disease, and so the pretest probability is gone. And so when you try to interpret those variants, it becomes much more difficult. If you have a FGFR3 mutation that causes achondroplasia, you see someone like this, yes, probably has it. Someone like this is probably not pathogenic. And so it's really difficult to interpret those variants in the absence of disease. So um, I'll go through some of the, the kind of tests that we do. So exome sequencing is now a common clinical test, even though some insurance companies call it experimental. They call everything experimental they can. Um, it reports on the expressed portion of the human genome. It generates a data on all your expressed genes. 
and it results in about six to eight gigabytes of crucial health information. So we, when we send a patient to get our own sequence, we have this huge data set, and it's transmitted to the physicians in a really complicated standard format that was developed in Silicon Valley called a PDF. So we have all this information on the genes, and what your physician or a physician gets is a report that might list one or two variants related to whatever you sent the test for. That's all they get. And so all that other data is unavailable for clinical care. So if you go through the genomic data life cycle, what essentially happens is someone comes in, they get their blood drawn, they get genetic sequencing performed, an exome generates six to eight gigabytes of data. If you're doing whole genome, that generates 100 to 200 gigabytes of data. And then based on all this data, they produce a list of candidate genes or variants in the genes that they think might be causative. And that's further refined to a list of port reportable variants that are put into a PDF, usually just a, a handful. So what happens to the other six gigabytes to 200 gigabytes of data? Essentially is discarded. So all of this really valuable information that is so critical to your care never actually enters the electronic health record. It never goes anywhere. And this is data that may be important down the road. Right now, you might not have a disease where it's important, but five years from now, a year from now, 20 years from now, that's important data. It's going to tell, you, tell your physician how you respond to medications. It's going to tell them about other diseases you're susceptible to and how to treat those diseases. So if you think about it, in relation to an MRI, it's like saying, okay, here's an image, but here's all you get to see right here. Just this. Don't, can't have that. Nope. This is what you got to look at. That's, what, that's really what we're doing with genetic data now. We're giving them just a little piece of what the information is. So with an MRI, you know, in medicine, it's not uncommon for us to be seeing a patient, have an MRI, and then we find something new in the patient. We say, whoa, wait a minute. I want to go back and look at that MRI again and see if we missed something. We can do that in radiology. With genetics, we can't. With genetics, we get what we get. We can ask for reanalysis, but they typically do those every two years or a year, year to two. That is a changing number. But we really should have all that data somewhere linked to the HR. So the way I look at genomics is very similar to a PAC system. A PAC system, so radiology images take a lot of space. And they're not, the EHR isn't, ideal to handle them. So they developed these PAC systems that essentially handle all the images and then the reports go into the HR. So genomics is very similar and this is the way we need to look at it. So specialists can actually look at all the data if they need to and have access to it. But then the, the information that's been vetted and tested goes into electronic health record. So integration of genomic data into the electronic health record is crucial for patient management and decision support and to help physicians practice genomic medicine. So just to summarize the challenges with genomics right now, we don't really have a way to store genetic data. The clinical genetics workforce is not scalable. There's no way to utilize genetic data in the clinical workflow currently. Clinicians outside of genomics are not equipped to manage genetic testing results. So we have a number of challenges. So as we look at genomic data, what, what do we want to store? What do we want to put in the electronic health record? We can put in, there's, there's, a, lot of inf there's a lot of things that we have to decide, you know, what, what is important here. You can look at discrete variants with known health effects. 
You can look at the entire variant file, or you can look at the raw data. And these are some of the challenges that just deciding which data to put there and where to put it is actually a big challenge. We can put just variants that we have information on right now, but then what happens a year or six months down the road when we gain more information? Interestingly, just to give you an example, I received a genetic test report back on a child who had a disorder, and it reported a variant and said, this is a variant of unknown significance. There's no reported literature. Two days after I got that report, there was a, an article in PubMed that described this disorder in another patient. So this information is coming really fast, and we have to be able to utilize it somehow. The other question is, where do we store the data? Do we store it in the electronic health record? Do we store it in an external database linked to the HR? Right now, everything is reported in a PDF, so we can't even use it for decision support. There's nothing to act on. And a lot of people aren't even, um, you know, aren't able to, wouldn't even look there to know if it was there. <clears throat> so only just this year has electronic health records actually given us the ability to store discrete genomic information that we can perform decision support. And for the, those of you who are not familiar with decision support, what happens is, for example, if you come in and you have a particular disease and I want to prescribe you a medication, there are certain pharmacogenetic variants that will determine whether that medication will actually work or whether it would be harmful or if you have to increase the dose. Right now, there's no place or in the past, just recently, there has been a place that we're, we're, we're working with, but in the past, there was no place for that. So a physician is very unlikely, before they prescribe your medication, to go search through your entire record, see if there's somewhere stored a pharmacogenomic variant that they have to change your medication. And most of them, even if they found that information, wouldn't necessarily know what to do with it. So with decision support, what you have is you have automated mechanisms in there so that when you prescribe the medication, a pop-up comes that says, hey, this patient will not, you know, has a bad reaction to this medication, don't prescribe it, prescribe this instead. So these are the kind of things that we are actually implementing at Geisinger within our electronic health record. But when you have it as a PDF, there's no way to act on that. So what first, one of the first steps is getting genetic variants into the EHR. So um, EPIC is the, the EMR that we use at Geisinger. We also have Cerner, and they've, they're also developing this way to, or a field to store genetic variants. There is some, still some work that needs to be done there. So one of the interesting things about medicine and frustrating things to me is that we, instead of developing things and let the standards, you know, come from the development, we wait for standards to be developed before we build things, which is really frustrating because we don't ever build anything, you know, we don't ever have <laughs> build things right because we base them on a standard that is not based on anything. It's just a guess of how we're going to use the data. But so, so there is some work still to be done, but at least we have a place to put the data right now. So um, I'm also part of this consortium for Agile Genomics where we are trying to get data from the laboratory into EPIC or any electronic health record electronically without using a PDF so that it goes directly in there. This is more challenging than I had originally thought. So I started this process when I was at Washington University and um, I, I was almost there, and, but then I went to Geisinger and continued, and I finally had it. We have an interface. We can take genetic data directly from the lab and stick it in our HR. So the minute that we got that figured out, 
Hold up. <laughs> there was this, you know, people were very concerned. So it was okay to put a PDF with a variant into the patient's medical record. That doesn't matter. But if you put discrete variant information with a genomic indicator, so disease based on it, in front of a provider, that's very different because they are expected or may take action on that. And if that variant classification is uncertainty, you don't, you don't want them to take the wrong action. So there was this big, you know, how do we vet, how do we make sure that the variants are, that are in there are the ones we want in there. And in addition, that we have the supporting context and materials to educate patients and providers what to do with that variant. So for example, if we have a variant of unknown significance in a BRCA1 gene, we do not want that to go front and center on the patient's record with, you know, breast cancer and, you know, susceptibility with this gene. Because we don't want a primary care provider to see that and say, and not knowing that it's a variant of uncertain significance, not understanding that terminology to say, looks like you need to get a bilateral mastectomy. We have to provide it in the right context with the right recommendations and provide the information to the patients as well. So even though that process sounded easy, we're still not quite there yet because we have to build that out for every single genetic indication that we have, which is quite challenging. We have to be able to deliver it with the right information. So bad things can and do happen. This is a personal experience that I had. Um, we had a patient that came in um, in her 20s, was seen by another provider, um, and evaluated for a connective tissue disease. She was clinically evaluated as having hypermobile um, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. This is a, a disorder that where you're hypermobile, can have some joint pain. There's certain characteristics that are associated with it, but not, you know, not, not a really serious disorder in most cases. So just to, to make sure she didn't have something worse, they ordered what we call an aortopathy panel. This is a gene panel that tests for um, diseases that are related to um, connective tissue where you may have um, a widened aorta and be at risk for aortic dissection, you know, where your, your aorta, uh, you know, the main vessel um, essentially breaks open. And so she was um, found to have a variant of unknown significance in a gene for Lois Dietz, which is a, a, a significant disorder that does impose significant risk. She had a cardiac MRI that was normal. And she was essentially, after the test, was told by the genetic counselor, this is a variant of unknown significance. You don't have any features that are related to this. So just go on your way. No follow-up is needed. So then this patient was seen by their OB-GYN provider because they became pregnant. And this provider went through their medical record, which was appropriate, and saw the genetic test. They didn't, under, they didn't understand that this was a variant of unknown significance. They thought that based on her being seen by a, a geneticist for a connective tissue disorder, that this is something meaningful. And they assigned her that diagnosis within an epic. So now she's labeled. So every single OB provider that saw her says, you have to have a C-section and you have to have monthly echocardiograms, both of which were completely unnecessary. So this patient, luckily being you know, intelligent about this, called back the genetics department and ended up, you know, I ended up um, looking into this case, said, no, you don't have it. And we took the diagnosis off and fixed it. 
But you can see how this could have led to some bad outcomes, or at least unnecessary procedures and unnecessary risks. So what we end up with is this question of providing too much information, so providing information that can be acted on in the wrong way, or not providing enough information and preventing the patient from receiving appropriate treatment. So where is that balance? And how do we decide when it's appropriate to put a variant in a patient's record? This is a huge challenge. So if we look at malpractice cases, and we use that as an indication. So in malpractice cases, you know, generally something bad happened, and there is a, a reason for it. And so if we, if we look at all of the genomics malpractice cases through 2016, only a handful of those are based on misinterpretation of variants, and the vast majority are based on the patient not getting the genetic test results or not getting a genetic test. So based on that information, I would almost have to say that the, you err on the side of providing information that's potentially actionable and just make sure that you deliver it in the context that a provider is not going to take action unless it's appropriate. So here's, I wanted to, now that we're talking about legal, I want to talk a little bit about pharmacogenomics. And I've, you know, talked about this a little bit. So we have a lot of these indicators that we, um, genomic um, uh, variants that are related to how you're going to respond to medications. And so one of our exome laboratories that we were sending exomes on patients said, hey, we want to give you pharmacogenomic variants for free. The patient just has to check a box where they want them and we'll send them. And so the general response from everybody was, yay. My response was no. And the reason why is because that confers a significant amount of liability on the hospital system and the provider if there's not an architecture and mechanism to act on those results. A cardiologist, a neurologist, or anybody else is not going to think, let me go look at a patient's exome testing report before they prescribe a drug. And if they prescribe a drug without doing that, and there's a drug that's contraindicated or is going to cause the patient a problem, that's a huge liability if they prescribe that medication and there was something in their medical record that said that they should not. And so I am all about having pharmacogenomics part of the medical record, but they have to be incorporated enough that we don't, that we make the correct decisions and that we don't incur you know, significant liability from putting them, them in there where no one will find them and no one will act upon them. So, and as I mentioned, how would the physician even know to find the report? They wouldn't. Because you have to remember, just like at Geisinger, it's a huge healthcare system. Implementing a significant change or putting something in there, it's hard to get that out to everybody. So we've talked about just genetic variants. There's a lot of other data that is, uh, that is really important that we have to, we could consider. The copy number calls from exome and genome are important. Um, that there's a lot, of, a lot of data that we can use in the medical record besides these discrete pathogenic variants. So what do we do with all this other data? How can we use it? So one of the projects we're working on is a project with SimulConsult. So this is, uh, in this grant, what we are doing is we're building this, essentially this PAC system that stores not just genotype information. 
So again, variants by themselves don't tell you a lot. But if I have a variant, you know, in BRCA1 and I have a strong family history of breast cancer, or, you know, if you have conditions that are associated with the variant, that's important. So what we've developed is this genotype-phenotype archiving system, which essentially stores not just genotype information, but phenotype information. And phenotype, is again, being the clinical findings or features, like if you're hypermobile or you have hypertension or just any of the, the clinical features that you have, to store them both so you can use them in conjunction with each other to make diagnoses as you're seeing the patient. So in this case, you can actually enter all the information and take information from this system and you can actually get a probability of diagnosis based on conditions. So you get a list of conditions and the probability of each diagnosis. So it's a pretty cool tool. Um, one of the first things that we're using. And so if you look at uh, GPEX, this is kind of some of the, the design. Essentially, we're storing genotype and phenotype information and interfacing that with the electronic health record. So another part of that is Phenotype Builder. So when you go see your healthcare provider, they're not going to type out in a list all of the features that you have. They're going to type this detailed note that says, I saw so-and-so for this condition. I found this and this and this and this happened and put a historical thing. But that doesn't, that's not stored discreetly. And so there's no way to access all that information for genetic diagnosis. And so one of the things that we're building is, is this tool that essentially goes through, reads the notes, and extracts all that phenotype information to store it into the GPACs. So now that we have genetic data in our electronic health record, now what? So we can do some really cool things. We can use that information to provide a genetic diagnosis. One of the things that I found with epilepsy, which has 70% genetic basis, 70% of epilepsy has a genetic basis. When we looked at the path of patients with known um, genetic epilepsy, it took an average of three and a half to four years for them to receive a genetic diagnosis. So all of this time they had been being treated inappropriately. In, in a few of the cases, they were prescribed medication that actually increased epilepsy for a year. In fact, one of them only changed after the mother said, I think this medication is increasing my child's epilepsy. And so... This, this data is really important for diagnosis to get the appropriate treatment. Clinical decision support, again, as you're in the clinical workflow, when you make decisions like prescribing medications, having an alert pop up that says, hey, this is inappropriate, do this instead. We can deliver information based on genetics to the providers to say, this is what they have, this is how you treat it. To patients, so they say, you can, again, this is what you have, this is what you need to know about it. And we can take action on that data if it exists. So this is a screen of SimulConsult, which shows you, you know, you put in all your findings, it's looked at your genotype, and it comes up with a probability of disease. This is actually without genotype. With genotype, this list has become smaller because you look at the genes behind, behind those diseases and you eliminate the ones where they don't have any potentially causative variants. Um, as part of a merge, we're building some clinical decision support tools for um, prescribing certain medications. We've already built those these for a couple. We plan to build at these... Um, out for all the CPIC level one um, indications. And to deliver information to patients and providers, we're working with EPIC to implement um, genome, um, info buttons within genomic indicators. 
is this little button with an eye on it that goes on the patient-facing medical records. So when you go into your patient portal to look at your medical information, you can click on it and get all the information about your genetic disorder. The same button will give different information to a provider that's more technical and will help them guide the disease. So this is another initiative that we have that we're working on um, with the creator of InfoButtons. We've developed the Compass Gene Report. This allows us, this is again, this um, catered genetic report that once that discrete information is in there can provide really catered information to patients and providers that with really detailed information on their diagnosis and how to manage it. We've also, in order to get past this barrier of not enough genetic counselors and not enough geneticists, we started to play with AI. So we've implemented chatbots. So this is a partnership with Clear Genetics and we use chatbots for counseling. We've just started this pilot. We're consenting patients. Um, we're following up on test results. We're answering patient questions and initiating cascade testing. So cascade testing is where you, we find a genetic change in you that predisposes to breast cancer or whatever it is, and we say, hey, you have family members that might want to know this because this could affect them as well. And so with our consent, um, sorry, we'll go to the family sharing tool. Essentially, you can say, you, can't, you, you can call your family and say, hey, I have this genetic change. There's something we need to do about it you should talk to your provider. Well, a lot of times they have a lot of questions that that person can't answer. And so you just send them a message through this family sharing tool and it gives them a chatbot interaction that answers their questions and provides them more information to guide them to get testing. So these are some of the, you know, I'm ending with some of the tools that we're using to try and implement genomic medicine and that seem to be, you know, in early studies seem to be working well. We've got a lot of work to do. And as mentioned, we're kind of leading this area, but, but there, there is still, we've got a lot of, of catch to do. There's so much, so much information and so, many, so much work that needs to be done in this field. And again, here's a, just a, a sample of our smart, frequently asked questions where they can go through and ask questions. Now, another feature of this chatbot is that if the questions get too technical or go outside of what the chatbot can handle, it does route you to a live genetic counselor. So it will, will provide that. And as we capture all that information from the interaction with a live genetic counselor, it informs the conversations we can put into the chatbot. So all that is, is recorded. So what's next? So we are really looking at ways to integrate all this genomic information into the workflow we have to decide which variants we're gonna put in there as discrete variants, decide how to include most of those in an automated fashion and decide you know, who, who is gonna curate that, who's gonna decide what goes into that record. What are the characteristics and standards we have to have to put a discrete variant in there? Um, <clears throat> and then how can we most effectively use all this information in real time while seeing a patient to impact patient care? And we have some uh, proposals and things that we're working on in, in that regard as well to actually integrate this into the patient-physician interaction. I'd like to acknowledge uh, a lot of the people that have worked on this. Um, Mark Williams at the Genomic Medicine Institute, uh, Darren Johnson, Bruce Levy, Dean Perry, Jordan Olson, Bonnie Sander, Rebecca Polk, Chauncey Christensen, Amy Stern, and Tara Schmidlin. They're the two that have um, done most of the chatbot work. 
Um, we have a number of other people and collaborators who have worked with us on this, and it's, there's a lot, a lot going on. It's an exciting field. And I'll open it up for questions. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.